Welcome to the ProfServe Traction Podcast, dedicated to exploring how professional services and technology businesses break through the ceiling. Here's your host, Steve Preda. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Preda. This is the ProfServe Traction Podcast. I'm the host of this podcast. And today I have a distinguished guest, Matt Kark. Matt is the president and CEO of CoreCentric. CoreCentric is a fintech company that is helping companies purchase, pay, and get paid. CoreCentric has been growing really fast. It was created as a result of a merger of Emeritech and CoreCentric, the original CoreCentric. Now they are called CoreCentric. They employ 300 people in Philadelphia, primarily Philadelphia and Washington DC area, but they are also in Europe, in the UK, France. So they are now expanding by leaps and bounds. And they just recently went through their latest uh, private equity round where they raised $8 million to fuel the expansion. So I'm very excited uh, to have Matt on the call. And Matt, so welcome, great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Steve, my pleasure. That's awesome to have you. So tell us a little bit about your origin story. So how did you get there? You know, it must have been a long and winding road for you. Yeah, very long and winding road. That probably started when I was you know, really a child. I watched uh, as I was growing up as a kid, I watched my dad who I would you know, classify as a serial entrepreneur. So I watched him you know, in his many different uh, business endeavors, whether it was starting companies he at certain points had his own race car driving team and was a professional race car driver. So got a lot of different exposures to different experiences just from kind of, you know, sitting there and being a sponge off of uh, his experiences. And, you know, I, um, I went to college and I had dreams of, of being a, a big broadcast journalism star and being a sportscaster. Uh, so there was a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of that uh, idea that I was going to do something totally different than my my dad had done. And I know that, you know, frustrated him that I wasn't going to study business or, or take that kind of more traditional path. I know but yeah, long, long story short, you know, I, I, I got out of college. Things didn't fall the way I wanted them to fall from a broadcast journalism perspective. And on my own, ended up getting a job at a technology startup in the D.C. area. Uh, and that was really my first exposure to what that whole world was like. And, you know, being that it was a startup, I was doing a little bit of everything. I was selling, I was project managing, I was managing developers. I was, you know, pretty much doing everything from soup to nuts, customer support. And so I got a little taste of everything and, and really enjoyed that and worked out that around that time, uh, you know, my dad's business, which you had mentioned before, AmeriQuest, you know, it was a primarily a group purchasing organization, but they had they had purchased a an e-commerce technology platform that would help you know scale the company and, and be able to manage the growth of transactions that were taking place within that that GPO. And the company happened to be headquartered in Northern Virginia, happened to have some similarities to the startup that I was working at. And so my my dad basically said, hey, you know, I just bought this company. I know nothing about running a technology company. You've got more experience than I do, even though you don't have a ton of experience. And, you know, I was brought into, again, another kind of startup environment where it was pretty much myself and, and a couple other people that were tasked with doing what we had to do to service the AmeriQuest business, but then also given the the opportunity to see if we could create something else on top of that in, in other endeavors. And that really is where the story started with CoreCentric. CoreCentric was the business that was acquired by AmeriQuest. And from that point forward, really a, you know, a long, probably a 15 year plus journey of kind of building it brick by brick and, and continuing to figure out ways to expand the, you know, the portfolio and the customer base. Yeah. I mean, what fascinated me when we first met, which was 
around three years ago when mm -hmm. I spoke to your research group. Uh, you were still running uh, CoreCentric, and CoreCentric was kind of the, the little sibling. So there were the yeah. two companies that were talking CoreCentric. CoreCentric was the little one, and it yeah. ended up essentially like a reverse takeover. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. <laughs> it ended up being the name, name of the whole group. Yeah. So my question is about how did that unfold and what were the size differentials when you started? And the other question was, how old were you when you, when you really get started? You must have been in your late 20s, right? When you started. Yeah, so probably even earlier than that, it was probably like my early to mid 20s was when I came and started working in the core centric business and really taking that thing on. So, so very young, but felt like, you know, I also at times felt like I had a head start just again from you know, growing up around my, my, my father and understanding, you know, how things work. And um, so I felt like I was maybe mature beyond my years, but, uh, you know, but, but still very young when, when that started. And, you know, really when the CoreCentric business, um, when I got involved in the CoreCentric business, it really had zero dollars of revenue outside of, you know, the AmeriQuest customer relationship, which now was our parent company. So we had zero dollars of revenue really coming from any, any external entity. So we didn't really have any customers to speak of uh, and really no revenue to speak of. So it was really starting from ground zero from that perspective. And, you know, the, the business, the, the AmeriQuest business was probably in that 10 to $20 million range in terms of where they were at in, in, in their life cycle and, and their revenue uh, growth. And, you know, that, that business continued to be a, what you would call a, you know, kind of steady growth business, you know, single digits year over year revenue growth. And then when we really started to get the AmeriQuest thing going, it took on more of the shape of a, you know, a, a successful technology growth story where we were growing 20, 30, you know, 40% year over year. And so you could see how that, you know, gap would be closed. All of a sudden it would flip around and, and you know, that become the, the, the major part of the business. So, so when I, re, as I remember, around the merger time, you were about the same size, roughly the same size. Yeah, it was about, revenue contribution-wise, it was probably about 50-50 split. So actually, had the CoreCentric was the, the growth brand in the group. It was, yeah, it was the growth engine to, you know, the, the beauty of bringing those businesses together was, you know, the AmeriQuest business was steady. So in the early days when, you know, when, when we weren't generating a lot of revenue, but, you, you know, it takes money to make money, right? We, we were still... You know, still needing to invest and spend money. You know, we had the the Ameriquest business as a backstop and, and really as an investment arm that allowed us to do what we had to do to to build the business. And then we were able to kind of return the favor as we started to grow it and become this very high margin business that was throwing off a lot of uh, a lot of EBITDA. So, so you basically had a good visibility of what it looks like to to run kind of a traditional business, the Meritech uh, logistics and. Uh, procurement uh, type business and then and financial service. And then you had the, the core centric, which was a technology uh, business. In your uh, view, what is the major difference between running a technology driven business to running a traditional non-tech business? And what yeah. are the specific challenges to that? I think the, the biggest difference is just kind of the mentality of how the businesses in the different, you know, in those different arenas are built, right? So in a traditional business, you know, especially like a brick and mortar business, you know, the expectation is like you have assets, but those, you know, whatever those assets are costing you better be costing you less than the money that those assets are returning. Right. So, you know, profitability is probably way more, um, you know, way more important, way more magnified in a, in a kind of traditional non-technology type business with a tech company, 
you know, there's this kind of, and it's become more and more prevalent and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, but there's this mentality where, you know, making money isn't that important, especially early on. And you just do things at all costs, right. To, to whether it's sales and marketing or whatever you got to do to kind of get that revenue engine going and to get the, the growth figures that, that are looking at. So it's kind of growth, growth at all costs versus, you know, that kind of brick by brick measured, you know, growth that, you know, other, other businesses try to achieve. So, I think, you know, what was fortunate is kind of having that DNA of, of both sides of that coin, you know, led us to kind of a balanced spot of understanding that, yes, you do have to make investments to grow the business, but do so responsibly, do so in an effort to still be profitable. We've been profitable every year since inception. So, you know, having striking that right balance answers the second part of your question, which is what's the, what's the most challenging, right, is, is sitting there saying, okay, if we did spend more, if we did sacrifice EBITDA margin for growth, where's that right, you know, where's that right line, right? Where's that right trade-off of, okay, we're going to invest more on the front end here. There might be a bigger picture, more down the line return on that. Um, and, and what's that right balance of, of profitability versus growth? That's, that's a constant, you know, push-pull kind of equation that you got to manage as you, as you scale your business. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, and especially when you have to self-fund the business, then it becomes a sure. bigger question. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, how do you balance the, the, the stability of the company so that you don't run right. out of cash, but also you know, grow it as fast as you can so that other people yep. don't have time to copy you, and that's, that's got to be a really difficult uh, challenge to manage. Probably. Uh, yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Give me some of the great successes that you had uh, personally as an entrepreneur with Corcentric. And what have been some of the major challenges or setbacks that you managed to overcome? Sure. I think from a success perspective, I, I truly believe every, you know, every business needs kind of that, that cornerstone account, right? That flagship account that really takes you from kind of a, a thought and a concept and a dream to, you know, okay, we're, we're, we've arrived and we've got, you know, and we've got some ability to really make something special here. And it's really trying to find what that cornerstone or flagship account's going to be. And then as an entrepreneur, you know, it's an all hands on deck effort, right? And sometimes you got to, you know, present yourself as a bigger company than you actually are, or you've got to, you know, overcome some credibility concerns or scalability concerns that, you know, you really don't have a lot of good answers for if you're just kind of getting started and, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have those things in your back pocket, you know, whether it's, you know, references or examples of exactly how you've done exactly what you're saying you're going to do for a, you know, for a, a larger customer. So really, I, I, you know, I look back at, for us, that was, you know, an engagement we landed with Daimler, you know, it was a really large engagement where we, we kind of leveraged everything you got to do in a situation like that. It was, you know, it was relationships and it was, you know, personal credibility and just really a, an amazing story that would, you know, probably be its own <laughs> podcast of, you know, it looked like it was dead and then it was not dead and we never gave up and, and really uh, managed at the end of the day to, to land that flagship account. So that was one, you know, really proud moment, but probably prouder for me was, you know, we would be nothing if we didn't execute, right? So it's one thing to, to land the account, to sign the account, to get the opportunity to, to do what it is you're trying to do, but then you got to execute. And, you know, in terms of what that looked like and how we executed and, and, you know, the, the relative flawlessness of which we executed that, that particular engagement. And it was just really came from people 
you know, I, I keep saying individual acts of heroism on a daily basis, you know, people just doing whatever they had to do, you know, pulling all nighters, working over a week, you know, just doing everything we had to do as a team to pull that off. And, um, you know, it gives you that confidence where you sit back. And once you've done that, you look and you say, God, if we can do that, you know, there's nothing we can't do. And it just sets you on this trajectory uh, from that perspective, just from a, a cultural and kind of mental uh, perspective. But then also, you know, the, the size of that opportunity and the revenue that it generated gave us so many more opportunities to do some things that, you know, allowed us to, you know, continue to make investments, to go to a board of directors and say, see, I told you so, there was something here. <laughs> and so, you know, it just was, it had so many different benefits and it was such a, a milestone for, for probably me personally, but also for uh, CoreCentric as a company to be able to complete that full life cycle of landing that account, executing it, and then continuing to have that as a as a key important customer as we as we go forward here. So that's fascinating. Matt, did you have some really difficult moments where you thought that this might this whole thing might go away, it might fall, the you know, you, you might become a failure and your dad's gonna feel like you have the business and what was that like and how did you come back from that? It's a great question. I think, you know, I've always told people, you know, when people ask me, like, you know, what would you attribute some of the successes you've had to? And I said, and I've read this from other, you know, business leaders and entrepreneurs, you know, for me, probably one of the biggest driving forces is fear, you know, fear of failure, uh, you know, fear of, of not achieving what I personally think I can achieve. And so, you know, I, I don't typically tend to have a lot of moments of doubt. Because I just know that that you know that 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 fear is going to motivate me to go above and beyond and 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 to be kind of relentless to say like I'm going to do everything I possibly can and run through a brick wall to to make sure that you know some somehow we're going to make this make this work. So I never felt never felt like there was going to be a a moment of failure because I have that that fear combined with kind of some some optimism that that combines to to create something pretty pretty powerful. And it also it also serves to it really serves to ward off complacency. You know that's what I always say is like no matter how well things are going, I always have this thought in my head like okay um, if I let the foot off the gas pedal at all, you know something's something's gonna gonna not you know work out well for us. So I think that's you know more the the feeling that I've had throughout you know throughout my whole you know. Can you give me an example where this fear was particularly potent and? where you were like really scared about uh, a situation? I think, you know, I'll never forget the, the feeling of when we actually, going back to the Daimler example, when we actually got that business signed, you know, um, my dad, you know, was super excited. Our CFO was super excited. And I just remember sitting there being like this pit in my stomach being like, oh my God, we actually have to do this, right? <laughs> like, you know, once it becomes real and, and really knowing like, the success or the failure of this, again, it takes, it takes a team, but the, the success or the failure of that was going to be, you know, solely, mostly relying on in my lap. You know, that was probably the most acute sense of fear, you know, that I had, uh, that I've ever felt really. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I think I, I haven't had something since then that's been so kind of daunting and overwhelming to say like, look, this is literally the difference between, you know, success or failure. And uh, not only that, but a you know fortune 500 manufacturer has entrusted us with you know what we were doing for them was really kind of taking over the the billing for all of their in an outsourced fashion for all of their you know top 1000 customers so then you've got this you know this fortune 500 company that's entrusted us to take over a core business capability of theirs and you know just 
trying to go to sleep at night processing that is, is a little no. daunting. <laughs> a, lot, a lot on the line. There must have been. I can yeah. I can only imagine. From uh, you know, the second yeah, second part of your question was you know some some failures or some things that didn't go well. I think you know if I could you know you take the if I could do it again thing. I think investing in you know the right sales leadership earlier on in our life cycle. So. I think we held on to kind of that entrepreneurial mindset of like, you know, using the term I used before, the kind of the, you know, individual acts of heroism performed on a daily basis to sell, um, you know, that probably uh, lived on too long and, and making that shift from kind of that entrepreneurial model to a model that's more uh, built to scale. And that probably exists in other areas of the business, but it's felt most acutely in the sales uh, arena because, you know, that's really the tip of the spear and without sales, you know, nothing else really exists. And so I always tell people in smaller businesses, I, I say always, you know, invest in good sales leadership, invest in sales uh, methodologies and, and processes that are built to scale earlier than you think you have to, because uh, it's tough to play catch up uh, when you don't do that. And so that's something that I think, uh, you know, if, again, if I could do over again, I would, I would do differently. Uh-huh. So switching gears here, uh, when we first met, obviously it was Debbie Tyler's uh, Vistage Group, which you were a member of. And you know, just two weeks ago, I was interviewing uh, Nick Beavers, who's also been a member of Debbie's group. And Vistage, obviously, you've been Vistage for a few years, so you know what it means, a peer group. But more broadly, who have been your major mentors in, in your career and what did you learn from? Yeah, there's no there's no bigger mentor than than my dad. Um, and again, that that you know happened really early on as a child. You know, just listening, you know, just being a fly on the wall, listening to how he dealt with business situations. You know, good, bad, people situations, financial situations. I gained so much knowledge. You know, I you know people always ask me, you know, uh, do you have your you know do you have your MBA? And I said, yeah, I have an MBA from, from DCU, Doug Clark University. And, and that was really, you know, I, I learned more, I think, from just, you know, again, being a fly on the wall, watching him, you know, understanding what, you know, what, how decisions get made and the important stuff, right? The really the heart of the matter of, of running a business. And, you know, you're, you're not always going to make the right decisions, but you have, you know, you have your core values, you have your principles that you feel very strongly about. You have your your own set of mentors that you kind of look for those foundational principles from, you know, so he was first and foremost, a mentor for me, I'd say expanding it outside of, of my dad. And a lot of what my dad stands for comes from these other individuals that I'm going to talk about, you know, big, big fan of Peter Drucker, you know, so I've spent a lot of time studying and reading his materials. We are big Jim Collins people. So big on kind of good to great. Uh, And then probably more recently, you know, very much into a gentleman by the name of Ram Sharan, who has uh, spent time in the in the boardrooms and the C-suites of, of a lot of really successful companies. And he has a way of, you know, taking very complex things and distilling them into very simple kind of concepts and it kind of brings you back. You know, whenever I read his material, it always kind of takes me out of the weeds and, and brings me back above and says, okay, what's, what's really important here and, and distilling it into, you know, simple concepts. So those are those are some of the more uh, bigger influences in terms of my my philosophies and the way that I, I try to have, you know, the kind of foundational principles I try to have in terms of managing people, making decisions, you know, the, the really important thing that you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, well, but we share some influences then because Drucker <laughs> is my uh, he, number one hero as well in terms of managing. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> 
so going, going back to your father, I mean, do you remember a specific uh, situation which really stuck with you where you saw him struggle with a decision and how he got to it and how he made it and what he based the decision on and what happened? Yeah, probably when I was just, you know, when I was just old enough to kind of understand what was going on happened to be probably the low point of his whole, you know, business career. So he had started a business, it's actually a truck leasing business in New Jersey. And, um, you know, he just ran into some hard times. He had built a, a good business, had signed some, some really good accounts and, you know, ran into some tough kind of macro conditions combined with, you know, what was going on with the business and, you know, ended up not only being in a situation where the, you know, the business was bankrupt, but it, it bankrupted us personally. And, you know, watching somebody in their, in their lowest lows and watching the integrity at which he, you know, went through that, how he kept his cool, you know, how he just kind of not even going into it, you know, going into it, I couldn't even imagine what he was feeling in terms of what it was meant to him personally, but more importantly to his family. Uh, you know, he had young kids. We lived in a town that was, you know, pretty affluent. So, you know, it wasn't you know, normal to be not successful in that in that environment. So just so much pressure and, and you know, to watch him manage through that. But I think more importantly, watching him coming out of that, you know, this is a, a very accomplished guy in a lot of cases, but realized that, you know, coming out of that, he really had to chop wood and, you know, just deal with, you know, what's right in the here and now. And then watching the full kind of reclamation there of, of, of kind of going to work, you know, he wasn't somebody that liked to, you know, hadn't gone to work for somebody in a really long time, but had to, you know, go work for somebody in a smaller business and, you know, have a boss and, you know, do more of a kind of nine to five thing. But he knew what he had to do for his his family and what he had to do to kind of get back to a position where he could then, you know, take his next shot at an entrepreneurial endeavor. So that, that whole, you know, that whole life cycle of watching, you know, not just the business side of it, but the personal side of how he dealt with that, you know, will, will be something that will stick with me for forever, really. It's kind of hard to imagine him going through that because I know him as an extremely conservative. Right, yeah, you only, you only know him as uh, yeah, he has a lot of money in the bank, and to yeah. imagine that he did that is kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, but he also, you know, he also takes a lot of lessons from that, right? And uh, even as we, you know, as we've, you know, entered these really tough times, right? The times we're all going through with, you know, with the COVID nineteen crisis and kind of the macroeconomics, you know. It was kind of the drought. I remember when we were talking to our board of directors about, you know, doing this deal we just did for for getting the, the capital we just brought in. And, you know, there was points in time where it was like, oh, well, maybe we should just, you know, wait, and not do a deal right now. And, you know, we don't necessarily need the cash to survive, but, um, you know, and, and maybe it would be better conditions to get a deal done, you know, kind of post-COVID. And he was so forceful with the board to say, like, we have no idea where this is going, right? And, you know, he who has cash is king and we need to get this capital in, even though we don't, you know, have a, you know, immediate dire need for it, but who knows, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And, you know, if capital markets dry up and this thing goes longer than people think it's going to go, you know, we don't want to be sitting there saying, God, we had an opportunity to, you know, put some capital in the bank and we did it. And so that's, I know that's so informed by, you know, the, the experiences he had, you know, earlier in his career. This is really, uh, this is really cool. Uh, I like that story. So Matt, we met, what, three years ago, and then you started implementing EOS uh, two and a half years ago. And um, I never asked you this question, but I really like to ask it to you uh, now. That why, did you, why did you find EOS, and how did you find EOS, and, and why did you decide to implement it? Yeah, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty voracious reader, especially a business book. So, you know, I had read a lot of 
different books and different business, you know, ways to operate a business operating systems. And, you know, I always found myself saying when I would, you know, I found myself in a position where I knew we needed to shift from, again, kind of being, you know, truly, you know, purely entrepreneurial where everything just kind of, you know, happens organically and there's no kind of rhyme or reason to it to, to some semblance of a more structured, scalable, you know, built for growth kind of uh, situation. And as I read different, you know, philosophies or, or business operating system models, you know, I always came away saying, well, I could, I could see myself implementing this piece or that piece, but the whole thing just doesn't seem realistic. It doesn't seem practical. It doesn't seem like something that, you know, would stick. And then somebody had recommended, you know, traction to me. And when I read it, I was like, I got to the end of the book and I was like, wow. I was like, it's really simple, but it makes a ton of sense. It ties together a lot of, you know, a lot of the concepts of people that I respect a lot, like a Jim Collins, uh, you know, taking, taking kind of, you know, pits and pieces from there's some Drucker stuff in there. And so when I got through it, I said, you know, I can actually see myself implementing this and I can see it sticking. And that's what was important to me. I didn't want to, you know, introduce something to the organization, have everybody go through, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, change and then have it be something that dies out, you know, a couple quarters later or a year later and everybody's like, all right, on to the next thing. What's going to be the next, you know, the next thing. So, you know, that was, you know, it hit all the notes for me in terms of, you know, the simple concepts of, you know, simplifying the business, you know, accountability, you know, operating off of kind of clear metrics, understanding who you are and, and what your target market. Yeah, those were all things that we really needed to get ourselves coalesced around. And then the way it was distilled in the in the book and then in the process, you know, again, was something that I thought was, you know, practical and, and something that could actually be implemented successfully. And more importantly, it could have, you know, staying power. What was uh, very interesting when we started working on it was that you just merged the two organizations, CoreCentric and Emory yep. Tech, and you had a huge leadership team, actually, which was a big concern for me because we started with 18 people on the leadership team, which yep. doesn't make implementation necessarily easier. No, uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you go through it, and you actually, I remember you saying that you want to use EOS to make the merger more seamless, and I wonder what the thinking was behind it. Yeah, so knowing that we were bringing together two, two different organizations, two disparate leadership teams that had operated in a very siloed fashion, I thought you know, some of the things that were, that were most important that continue to be so important from you know, the whole EOS uh, model is you know, we got to get people speaking the same language, right? Like that's the first step in trying to like bring, bring people together. Like what's, what's the language we're all going to use that we're going to know when somebody's saying something, what, what they're talking about? And so I thought, you know, that was really important. I thought, you know, breaking down these silos, creating an ability for people to interact on a regular basis, but interact where we're talking about the, the right things and the most important things was, was huge. So I really viewed it as a way to accelerate something that I think would have taken probably you know, many more years to achieve had we not done it that way. You know, if we not implemented EOS, I think it really accelerated the, you know, is it perfect? Was it perfect? No, but it, it certainly accelerated our ability to, you know, to, to make that, it, it really amounted to an integration. It really managed, amounted to a, mer a merger, even though we were working within the same kind of umbrella company for many years, you know, it was, it was people that hadn't really interacted on anything other than a surface level capacity up until then. And, and so it really accelerated things from, from that perspective and allowed us to get, you know, positive momentum post kind of merging those groups together much, much faster. 
Yeah. So looking at the US tool set, and you've been through most of the tools, if not all of them, what, which tools stand out for you as you feel are the most impactful for the center? I think uh, probably, you know, the tools that, that have had the most impact on us are, you know, the whole concept of, you know, of rocks, right? You know, that's been the, the most impactful because I think as a, you know, fast moving, you know, very, you know, aspirational organization, you know, we, our biggest problem was, say, you know, not knowing what to say no to and saying, or, or saying the flip side, saying yes to everything and right. everything was the most important thing and everything was, you know, uh, the thing we needed to be prioritizing the most and everything was the high priority. And, you know, so just going through that process of setting rocks so that everybody knows, you know, when push comes to shove, this is, you know, what is most important is hugely impactful. And I think kind of, you know, working bottom up from the, from the whole kind of rock concept is you know, having that, you know, having that waterfall from, you know, your, your longer term vision, you know, to a more, yeah, to a more defined three-year goal, to a more defined one-year plan to, you know, what are you going to do this quarter and being able to tie that, you know, bottom up and top down, I think was huge, not just from an execution standpoint, but being able to take that out to the rest of the organization as we were growing, you know, really fast was one thing we were finding, right, is that, you know, at maybe the upper levels of the organization, we all knew where we're trying to go to, or maybe we thought we did, you know, probably got a couple different answers even amongst the leadership team about, you know, what we were trying to accomplish and what we were trying to do. But at least there was a decent understanding of, you know, the big picture. But then as you got like every level down in the organization, there was less and less of a, an understanding of, you know, where are we going? What are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we prioritizing what we're prioritizing? And so having that one you know, that one kind of top down, bottom up way to kind of frame that whole thing up and then using that to align, you know, how different departments set their priorities is, you know, something that makes it very efficient and, you know, gets everybody, you know, we're up to 500 employees now, you know, gets everybody, you know, aligned as quickly as possible, you know, on a, on a really on a quarterly cadence, which is, which is critical. Do you feel that there is a point up, up to which U.S. will support you and there will be a point beyond which it will not be uh, any more sufficient? I think the foundational principles are, are good, you know, they, they can scale probably pretty, pretty well, um, you know, as, as we grow. I think there are some things you probably have to, you know, think about or layer in as, as businesses get more complex, as you get larger, you know, sometimes you know, the, I think when I look at EAS, I think the beauty of it is the simplicity. I think also some of that simplicity might have trouble, you know, meeting the needs as, as businesses really get, you know, really get much, much larger and, and more complex. But I think the, the, the principles, you know, around, you know, you know the, the long-term vision, back working backwards to your near-term goals, the, the concept of rocks, the concept of having, you know, the cadence that you have on a weekly basis, on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis, those things are all critical no matter, you know, what the size or complexity of a, a, bit of a business is. I think there's probably just, you know, things that, you know, need to be either tweaked or, or modified to satisfy, you know, maybe the needs of a, of a large organization. Any tools that you feel specifically are missing from the arsenal that could add to, to the slate if, if they were U.S. tools? Anything that you need to do outside of EOS because there's no tool for I No, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'd, I'd probably turn it around and say, you know, the, the tools will work. The, the tools are all there. It's just, you know, can you, 
can you leverage all of them right uh, effectively? And I think that's you know that's that's the key is you know how are you leveraging the tools? And so if I were to say that maybe there was a tool missing, I'd probably introspectively look and say, well, actually the tools there were just not you know, we're just not leveraging it correctly or we're not leveraging it at all, right? So, so I think any, anything that I would say, you know, is, uh, and I'm sure you would call me on it too, you, you turn around and say, well, actually, if you use this tool the way it was intended to be used, it would solve for that exact situation. So, uh, so that would be my... You should be, it's my fault because I'm... I'm really, yeah, <laughs> yeah let, let's stop this conversation now. <laughs> so you started CoreCentric, you started running CoreCentric because you had no revenue 15 years ago. So if you knew uh, then what you know now, what advice would you have given yourself to the young uh, Matt uh, Clark uh, as to what you should pay attention to in, in growing for something? Yeah, I think it's, you know, extension what I talked about when I was talking about the sales side of things earlier. And it really, you know, not to be a, an EOS advertisement here, but, but honestly, like, you know, anybody that I talk to that's got early stage companies, you know, that's one of the first things I tell them to do. I say, go, I'll either give them a copy of Traction or I'll tell them to go out and order a copy on Amazon. And I'll say, just read it and come back to me and tell me, you know, what you think is, why you think you, you, you shouldn't put this in place right now. And, you know, it's very rare that somebody would come back to me. I don't think it's happened yet. I mean, people read it and they're like, wow, that makes total sense. And it all goes along the lines of, you know, starting to implement something like that earlier than you think you have to. Because the earlier you start implementing it and you're getting into that cadence, you know, the simpler it is going to be for you to scale scale the business. I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make is, you know, they, you know, are heads down and you got to be, your head's down just kind of in the business. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, we're, 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 we're having success, but we're not built to, you know, to, to support it going forward and built to scale. And so I think, you know, implementing these kind of things earlier than you think you have to is the number one piece of advice I would, I would give because it, it just makes that ride a lot smoother. You're always going to have challenges. You're always going to have bumps in the road, but it, it really helps it. And then, you know, it's very difficult to play catch up. You know, it's really difficult to, you know, once a, once a business has kind of like spawned its own kind of, you know, expansive reach, it's, it's a lot harder to bring that back in than it's if you kind of, you know, manage that as you, as you grew uh, on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. I, I always say that this is a low hanging fruit for companies to implement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's something that is not, not very expensive. It is not very complicated yeah. Yeah. and it will improve things immeasurably. So why wait with it? There are some private, private equity companies that do this, uh, their hundred day plan. One of the steps yeah. is get them on EOS and, this is one less things that the private equity fund manager has to worry about because right. they uh, run themselves in an organized fashion. And then we just yep. look at how to drive the business model from there. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, Matt, I really enjoyed uh, our discussion. Um, so if, if our listeners would like to learn more about CoreCentric, about what you do, and they want to reach out to you, where do they find you? Yeah, so uh, websites, corecentric.com, C-O-R-C-E-N-T-R-I-C.com. You know, we're on LinkedIn. We're on all the social media, um, you know, avenues there. So you can find us anywhere there. And certainly I would encourage folks to, to go and learn, learn more. And, you know, I'm always a, an open book and an open uh, line of communication. So if folks want to, you know, reach out to me directly, regardless of whether it's about what we talked about today or, or what Corecentric does, uh, please don't, don't hesitate. 
So what was the best way to reach you directly? Do you have a Twitter account that people can uh, hit you up uh, on or, or? I don't. I think LinkedIn's probably the best way. You know, that's how I try to get people to, you know, I'm not hard to find on LinkedIn. And then if you shoot me a, a message, I can, I can get back to you. So that's probably the best way to, to reach me. Oh, that sounds, sounds excellent. So listen, I know that uh, the football season is up in the air and uh, <laughs> no, no, no way to attend Eagles games. Uh, how do they make up for that? You know what? I, I, I keep telling everybody, I'm, I'm somebody that tries to look for the positive and everything. So I, you know, I've been spending, I usually travel 75% of the time. So I'm spending so much more time with my family and that's, you know, that's something that I wouldn't trade for anything. So it's been been great from that perspective and i'm sure we'll we'll get sick of each other eventually but that hasn't happened yet and we're just uh <laughs> trying to have as much fun and enjoy each other's time and 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 uh make the best of it as we possibly can well listen matt i really enjoyed it it was a wonderful uh to talk to you and this was the professor of traction podcast uh, episode i don't know which episode is gonna turn out to be but uh, check us out on all the major podcast engines or go on tractionactivity.com and you can uh, listen to all the past episodes over there shoot me any questions that you like uh, me to ask uh, our listeners and uh, i'll make sure that we get that on or if you know someone a professional service or technology entrepreneur that would be a good guest then uh, shoot me their name and i'll try to uh, lure them into the show so thank you for listening And uh, everyone have a great day. This was the ProfServe Traction Podcast with Steve Prada. To learn how your professional services or technology business could break through the ceiling with EOS, visit tractionequity.com.